Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Prime Minister has said through his ambassador in Washington that he will refuse a USMCA ratifying photo op with Donald Trump if U.S. tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum are not dropped by then. I spoke with Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party, about that. Have a listen. Caregivers for Canada's military veterans living with PTSD. I spoke with Michelle. She's the wife of a Canadian military veteran deployed to the Balkans as part of the UN force in the brutal battle in the Medak pocket in 1993 when the 2nd Battalion of PPCLI fought to stop ethnic cleansing of Serb civilians by Croatian forces. Michelle's husband was not treated particularly well by the federal government as other veterans were not. Listen. Is war between President Donald Trump and mainstream media in the U.S. escalating? I spoke with Professor Paul Levinson from Fordham University about that. He's a communications and media professor, and he does not like Donald Trump particularly. The stories circulating about Tony Clement, former cabinet minister in the Mike Harris government of Ontario, and the federal government of Stephen Harper. I spoke with a former liberal MP, 18 years in Canada's parliament. Dan McTague talked about what life is like for a member of parliament. He was not making excuses for Tony Clement. The state of Washington often is described as the most liberal of the 50 states which comprise the USA, so it might have been expected the people of Washington in Tuesday's midterm election would have voted for an on-the-ballot statewide carbon tax. Instead, they gave it two thumbs down. Todd Myers spoke to me. He's the director of the Center for Environment at the Washington Policy Center. Mr. Scheer, thank you very much uh, for the time. What's your reaction to the fact that Mr. Trudeau will not pose for a photo op with Donald Trump and coyly chatters around that on CNN. I mean, this is the guy, this is the man, well, the, this is the king of selfies who and the impromptu dancer in India. Well, it, I think it does show you how uh, Justin Trudeau's mind works, that he thinks that, uh, you know, this is a, a tough negotiating uh, tactic, that, uh, that people must want to take their picture with him so badly that if he were to withhold that, it would somehow strengthen his position and get us a better deal. The time to get steel and aluminum tariffs uh, off of Canadian exports was not during the signing ceremony or, or you know, uh, uh, around the optics or, or imagery. Uh, it was during the negotiations. That, that should have been a key part of the negotiating strategy, strategy for Canadians, uh, and, and he failed to do that. Uh, so, uh, again, to me, this is just how Trudeau's brain works. It's always optics. It's always style all the time. And, uh, and what he's learning is that that, that doesn't actually uh, get results. What do you make of uh, the suggestion that the United States may be trying to change the agreement before it's ratified without properly advising uh, Canada of what they're up to? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to find out uh, exactly what the intention is. You know, uh, we all went through a very difficult uh, year and a half with the negotiations. There's a lot of anxiety here in Canada about what might happen to auto, uh, what might happen to uh, everything from uh, from telecoms to uh, obviously agriculture and, and manufactured goods, and still aluminum was part of that. Uh, the, the the sense a lot of people got was all you know the major concessions were given away without without really anything in return. Uh, so for heaven's sake, we we don't want this to get any worse than it already is. Uh, so uh, I think it's it's very important that this government focus on that. You know, make making sure that we have free and open trade or as close to that as we can possibly get with a president that is clearly going down a protectionist road uh, is the top priority. It is it is the number one. Uh, bilateral issue that this government should be uh, focusing on because so many jobs depend on it. So, you know, clarity, good lines of communications, multiple lines of communications, not getting caught up about things like photo ops and, and, and imagery, but sitting down and actually uh, figuring this stuff out is where this government should be focused on. Well, it worries me somewhat because we know that uh, the, the President of the United States um, does not take well to what he considers to be insult. Now, whether we approve of that or not doesn't matter. It's the response of the President of the United States, which is ultimately going to affect Canada. It really wasn't necessary for the Prime Minister to make his statement and take the position and say it through 
the ambassador to the United States that he wasn't going to be there for a photo op with the president of the United States. There could be fallout for, for this country and for our business community. Well, you know, I think we're all up, up here looking at the U.S. Uh, situation. Uh, this is uh, uh, a type of administration that we haven't seen before. And, uh, and of course, people have very strong views uh, about this particular president and, and his policies and, and how he puts things. But when it comes to the prime minister of the country, uh, he has to have his eye on the, on the ball. And he can't allow uh, the, the his own personal issues to get in the way of that. If he feels that somehow this is strengthening his position by withholding his presence. Uh, you know, he's not going to grace the signing ceremony with his presence, and somehow that's going to force the U.S. side to, to drop these tariffs. I think he's, he's missing the... the he, he, I, I, just, I just don't think he's got an accurate assessment of the situation. And so in any way, when, when you've got the prime minister of this country uh, threat, you know, endangering the, the, the relationship or um, making it harder for Canadian companies to rely on open markets uh, to the U.S., then, uh, then you know, he, he, he's, he's, not, uh, he's not fulfilling his duties uh, as he should. So uh, we, need to, we need to recognize that this is a president of the United States with a, with a much different attitude towards foreign affairs and towards trade. Uh, we, we don't have to like it, but we have to uh, find a way to make sure that Canadians aren't affected by it and that uh, we don't lose any more market access than, than we already have with all the concessions that Trudeau signed off on. Let me change subjects here. You, uh, you've been talking about how you would build a safer Canada, and you specifically have been focusing on how a Shear administration, how a Shear government would deal with gangs in this country, which is a, a growing concern, and uh, it doesn't seem to be slowing down. It's not something that's going to take care of itself. Well, exactly. Uh, it's actually on the rise, and it is responsible for a lot of violent, uh, violent attacks, including innocent bystanders being uh, being shot, uh, being victimized. And I had the opportunity over the past few months to visit police forces across this country and in every major city I've traveled to. And the feedback was that uh, there are several parts of our justice system that make it very difficult for police officers to, to put bad people away. Uh, one of them is the uh, automatic bail pr- provisions, where repeat violent gang offenders are, are out on bail, often before the the cop has finished processing the paperwork, and they go right back out and they threaten any potential witnesses. It's very hard to make it harder to get prosecutions. They they, they reoffend. Uh, so I've got um, several points in this plan. Uh, I'll run through them very quickly. The first is removing that automatic bail provision. Uh, if somebody has a prior conviction for a gang-related activity, uh, they'll have to, it'll be what's called reverse onus. They won't automatically get bail. They have to uh, prove that they deserve it, that they're, that they're not a threat to the community. Uh, automatic parole revocation if they reassociate with gang members. Right now, when uh, someone gets parole, uh, they can go right back to hanging out at the same uh, spots, the same bad people that are in the, the gang or a criminal organization. And what I'm proposing would be that if they do that, that would be automatically, uh, th- their parole would automatically get revoked. Right now, the Liberals have a bill before the House of Commons actually lowering penalties uh, to as little as a fine for a gang activity. Uh, and I'm also proposing tougher penalties for those uh, very types of convictions. Okay, mandatory sentences in federal prison. Uh, Mr. Shear, you, you do know that when you pass legislation like that, if you become the prime minister and you pass this legislation, there's a good chance that someone's going to take particularly legislation like this to court, and you could find yourself trying to defend your legislation before various levels of court. Do you find that frustrating? Well, uh, you know, I, I do believe that it's healthy to have uh, checks and balances, and, and uh, that, that I wouldn't want to live in a country where you didn't have the ability to challenge things and have uh, judicial. Yeah, but it's, it really should be. Should balance. it not just? Should it not be the parliamentarians and three readings of bill, a bill and passing by the Senate? Shouldn't that be uh, enough? Well, I, I'm very confident that the, the, this, these types of measures would. Uh, would be approved. We have to remember that there are already provisions in the criminal code for mandatory sentences. There are already yeah. uh, provisions for reverse onus. So these are well-established legal principles that I am proposing uh, would be applied to uh, uh, in the area of, of gang activity. So these are things that have been tested in the past and, and, and upheld. Uh, so I'm very confident that 
you know, while it's every criminal's right to, uh, to, to to appeal and to challenge things, that uh, that ultimately uh, the courts will recognize that this is exactly where Parliament has the right to define terms. Yeah, I was just thinking of a father in Vancouver whose uh, older son, I think he was killed, he was a drug dealer, and his younger son was getting involved in the same activities. And so the father went to the police and asked for help, and they said, we can't do anything because we don't have anything really on your son. And that's the, that's the frustrating end of things. Also look at the family side. Uh, let me ask you this. Asia Bibi, the, uh, the lady, the, the Christian woman in Pakistan who was sentenced to death for blasphemy, has now been released by the Pakistan Supreme Court and has caused violence in Pakistan and death threats to various people. She's looking for a country to call home. The, uh, I understand the U.K. has turned its back on her. And uh, I don't know what the United States is going to do. And Canada has said that uh, uh, through the parliamentary secretary to the foreign affairs minister that they're carefully, I'm paraphrasing, carefully assessing the situation. In other words, they're not doing anything. What would you do? Well, I, I, I believe that this is exactly the type of person that needs to be uh, helped. You know, she's a religious minority in, in that country. Uh, many, many Christians have been uh, killed because of their faith. It is it is a, a place where uh, it is not safe to be uh, different uh, different religions. And uh, it's quite clear that uh, she's a high profile case who, whose life is in danger. Would you, would you bring would you bring her to, would you bring her to Canada? I, I I I think on its on the face of her case, yes. I think uh, you know obviously. You know, uh, uh, proper reviews have to be done. Uh, but uh, but yeah, you know, to 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 say that she's going to uh, potentially be killed and, and and because of her faith and because she's high profile, but so we're just going to leave her there. Uh, I think this is exactly. I don't agree with that. I, I think that this this is where our refugee system should be uh, bringing people yeah. uh, who are facing real danger into our country, not having a system that just allows people to cross over illegally. This is people who are coming in from upstate New York are not facing this type of persecution. She is. She's a religious minority. This is exactly what refugee uh, conventions are designed yeah. to, uh, to, 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 to do. And I think, I think this government should do more than just assess the situation. I think they should start to, uh, do, you know, start the process. Well, I just remember, remember the tweet from the prime minister to those fleeing persecution, terror, and war. Canadians will welcome you regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Hashtag welcome to Canada. Mr. Scheer, thank you for the time. Uh, obviously, gang issues have to be dealt with. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on uh, Mr. Trudeau and the photo op story. It only this would this is this is a story that would only circulate around Justin Trudeau. No other living national leader would be in such a situation. And it's good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you again, Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. The aircraft in the sky, we had 4,000, they, they say there were approximately 4,000 aircraft supporting us. They were attacking everything, including us. But uh, then going into the beach, uh, it was something that uh, I wouldn't like to go through again. I was one of the fortunate ones, but uh, we made it, thank God. There was a lot that didn't. But that's that's part of war. Eh? We did it uh, with our hearts, and uh, I would do it again. He became a very good friend of mine, Ed Mahoney, who uh, was describing D-Day, June 6, 1944, Juno Beach. And uh, Ed was probably 81, 82 years of age when we recorded that some maybe 12 years ago. And uh, to hear this man say he would do it all again was just absolutely just numbing. He's no longer with us, but uh, his memory is. As is the memory of all who fought for this country and who sacrificed so much. In so many cases, sacrificed their lives. But we'll talk more about the uh, military and Remembrance Day and the sacrifice on tomorrow's program. I wanted, though, today, on the uh, day before Remembrance Day, speak with uh, Michelle in Saskatchewan, and this is about caregivers for Canada's military veterans who are living with PTSD. Michelle is the wife of a Canadian military veteran who was deployed to the Balkans as part of the UN force and who fought in the brutal battle of the Madak Pocket in 1993 
where the 2nd Battalion PPCLI fought to stop ethnic cleansing of Serb civilians by Croatian forces. Michelle's husband suffers from PTSD and was, in, uh, in her words, uh, discarded by the military and the Canadian government when he came home, as were other veterans. And um, uh, Michelle joins us. She's also uh, involved with OSI CAN, which is there to help military veterans, first responders, and corrections employees dealing with PTSD. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for taking the time. Hi. Good afternoon. Can you tell us, please, what caused your husband's PTSD? Remind us, please. Well, if I could go backwards and maybe just correct one thing. Um, When you said he suffers, I would like to point out a a picture of recovery and resiliency and enduring personality. Um, The word suffer just kind of victimizes a lot of us that are in recovery, if you will. So let's let's say that he's painted a really great picture for what recovery and resiliency could look like despite the odds. Good point. Yeah, Yeah. great point. So, um, you know what? Um, it was our first year of marriage, and my husband was a reservist who took this call up very, very seriously because he had very passionate about um, being a reservist in the military. And uh, when this call out came, he tried along with every single other person to uh, make the make the cut, if you will, and uh, did some hard hard training in Canada and the United States um, as part of the PPA. PPCLI's, you know, long-known, you know, uh, serious history in, in taking this job, you know, first and foremost, importantly, right? So um, he made the cut, along with several other reservists, which was an honor all on its own. And then to go over there was our first year of marriage. And to sum it up, when he came home a year, well, nine months later, I didn't really know who he was. Um, there was an indifference right away, but yet you you don't really understand. You just you know, check yourself and wonder, you know, we've been away from each other and because he didn't share anything that happened at all. I've heard, you know, I've heard that from other military families who've suffered this or suffered. There we go again, because it, it is a word that comes, comes so easily, right? Yeah, let's use endured. Yeah, endured. <laughs> they, they've endured so much and, and they eventually realize that their relationship has been really torn apart by the but circumstances, by the circumstances that they're facing. You're right. And you know what? The the thing, if you add in that, and then you add in a huge loyalty and respect for the Canadian military and our history, and having a legacy of forefathers and grandfathers, if you will, and great-grandfathers that also were serving members, then if they didn't complain, why the heck would you? Exactly. So you sit in silence, and and this is how I understand this now, and not just from my husband's um, case, because as I pointed out, I'm very proud of his resiliency and recovery, and then he moved into another career in correction. So, um, you know, that all in itself is, is exactly what most people would aspire to, having that military background, they enter all different types of first responder yeah. categories. Yeah. So, uh, so, so he comes, yeah. he comes back, he's living with post-traumatic stress disorder, you're living with it as well, it's in your home, it's in your relationship, it's in your family, yes. and governments have a responsibility, although they've denied it, and they've denied it in court, that they don't have a social contract with men and women of the military, uh, and taking it all the way to the Supreme Court to make that case. But governments know it's going on, and so the expectation would be for you, as for other families, earlier and then later as well, that there would be some significant understanding and willingness to become engaged by the federal government, by Veterans Affairs Canada. What happened? Well, you know what? Um, the fact that was the most demeaning, if you will, and and... Um, disheartening was that he was a a reservist, as I said. So when he came back, was cleared out after a 20-minute psychological assessment in Winnipeg, I was in my fourth year of social work at the time, and we even had a 15-minute discussion about PTSD in fourth year university 25 years ago. So can you imagine that, 15 minutes? No. Everybody should be a serious pro. So I already had skills in understanding, if you will, 15 minutes. I'm I'm being silly, but... When he came home, you're right. Um, we already felt that disconnect. So 
also being a reservist who is now cleared out because now things are unraveling and he's wanting to just be out of the military. So he did. He he ended his career abruptly. That was it. He was done. And he focused on the next career that he was having and went right into that with the same verver, if you will, and um, as he did with the other career. So the point of this is is we had to, when, when it came to light due to... Um, a psychologist in Saskatoon who was very well known for assisting first responders and veterans especially had been referred to us, um, that's when we started to find out we were entitled to all this different types of support that we could, in fact, access or should be able to. But it felt like we were handcuffed from the start. So nobody stepped, obviously nobody stepped up, nobody said, here's what's available, please uh, please access this, we, we care about your husband, we care about his fellow uh, members of the Canadian Armed Forces who served with distinction, none of that. No, sir. No paperwork, no Christmas cards, no, you know, happy yeah. birthday, thank you for serving, nothing. The, the continuity was disconnected, it was done, it was over with. And so I... Um, I've been told I'm a little bossy and I'm quite assertive, and I call that passion. Because now I realize that it wasn't just him that I had to fight for. It was myself and my family mm-hmm. as well. Because my husband was doing a really great job of keeping himself doing, you know, going well. But what about us? Where, where was our support at the very least? My husband's journey is his journey. Uh, but what was our journey? Where, where were we going to get help from? So I started putting pressure and bugging and bugging and bugging. And a great gentleman back then, his name was Jim Woodley. I would like to give him some praise. He honestly reached out with a, a huge hand, um, and that was prior to the OSIS days of development. And he just he took us in, and he started to help us to advocate for what we could go, uh, you know, moving forward from where he was at. But as soon as we hit Veterans Affairs, other than applying for, you know, benefits and pension, there was no hand, there was no extension. Our Saskatoon office got closed. There was no local people. It just seemed to be a, we're just going to fold up and forget about you. So you were left, essentially, if you hadn't done all the digging, you would have been left to your own devices. Good luck to you. Hope you make it, but we don't have time for you. Oh, yeah. And that's why I can see why, you know, sadly, so many people give up the process, the paperwork. Mm -hmm. My gosh, trees are dying for the amount of paperwork that is redundant and stupid um, that leads us all to an end result of, sorry, you don't qualify, your husband is not sick enough, you're not sick enough, you don't make the cut, he's not old enough, he wasn't there long enough, the issues aren't relevant, Uh, we're going to do some more digging and checking. Um, I don't know one person who has ever applied for the caregiver um, um, benefit that they so proudly throw a lot of fancy brochures at and color posters, but I don't know anybody alive that um, that has qualified for this program. Even today? Oh, well, yes. I still have not met one person. I really do hope that between me and my other advocacy sisters, Jenny and, and such, across this great country that we can hopefully meet the one person who is finally successful. Well, I'm going to be speaking with Jenny Mino tomorrow on the program. I first talked with her about, I think it's about five or six years ago. Oh, wow, what a treasure she is. She is. She's amazing, and she's faced uh, what you're facing, and she's fought the battle. As you say, your sister's in this battle. Tell us, please, uh, about OSI uh, CAN, Occupational Stress Injury. What's that about? Well, we go by Operational Stress Injury, um, just to be clear, and, and that's because... Um, the, the forethought of this when all of the different partners got together at our working table and started this initiative um, almost three and a half years ago now, um, it was discussed that we would, we, would, we would use that as the people that were coming in our demographics. Um, they developed their PTSD slash operational stress injury by virtue of, you know, protecting Canada, protecting mm-hmm. their community, protecting inmates and others and so it's it happened in an operational fashion so this is why we're going with this so it was started by a a veteran who had emigrated to canada and um uh just a most beautiful story um it was it's a partnership now with canadian mental health association um, saskatchewan division and royal canadian legion and our our goal is to include all first responders even those that haven't been designated yet um 
like correctional officers to fit into that category. We have at our table um, not only Legion Command, the uh, president of the Saskatchewan Federation of Police Officers, we have a head EMS paramedic, we have a psychologist, we have a college of paramedics, we have uh, search and rescue people, we have veterans. We have asked the questions and developed our initiative, which is about peer. So is this only in Saskatchewan or is it national? Well, my goodness, um, you know, willing to go everywhere and anywhere. Um, but we have focused on getting Saskatchewan right over the last three years and making right. sure that we had uh, the initiative. And we're all volunteers led by a, an amazing man named Julius Brown at the helm in Regina. Um, we, we're we just trying to get the peer side and our phone-in group and our website and our awareness. We have links to psychologists. We provide a number of resources, and we're just trying to get it right here. But absolutely, we will be branching out, you know, pending any offers, absolutely, to, to continue what okay, we've so already done the legwork for. Michelle, give me the website, please. Sure, www.osican.ca. So, osican.ca. Yeah, and OSI can if you if you cover up the O and the S, the the, the man who um, is you know spearheaded this, Chris Siddons, he wanted it to be a message of I can. I like it. And we have a phoenix in our logo. It is so appropriate. But now what we have in three years, I my Prince Albert group has been meeting since um, for almost three years now, and you know what? It benefits me to sit there as a peer amongst people who get it. There is no egos. People check their attitudes at the door. Their egos are left. And it is just a pure, pure environment that we can honestly openly share. And what's that branched off now to is a family and a spousal area. And so now we have people that meet um, in their own space. And it, it's really enlightening to see the, the advocacy that goes around that round table in such an informal setting. Okay, so let's say then for members of the military... And for first responders, correctional yeah. officers, who are dealing with PTSD. Um, diagnosed or not, Roy, sorry. That, that is our, we want to be clear, we're not there to diagnose anybody. So if you have experiencing situa- you know, symptoms, yeah. but you haven't been professionally diagnosed, you can walk through the doors at any one of our meetings across Saskatchewan, and we have them in every major city now. Okay, so I'm going to suggest to people that they get on your website, yeah. osican.ca, Triple W, of course, osi.can.ca, find out what it's about, get in touch with you if they have interest in expanding and, and opening up their own chapter in whatever part of Canada they're in, and getting this off, getting this going nationally because you're doing what the federal government should be doing and isn't. Michelle, I'm going to have to take a break, but I thank you so much for joining us. You're a remarkable woman. You mm-hmm. really are. And you I'm, know, I'm sitting here in my pajamas. I'm my authentic self, my service dog that was just recently donated to me um, through uh, Courageous Companions and OSI Can. I just have to tell you that he's laying at my feet, so I must be doing amazingly well, and I appreciate you for just listening to Jenny and I and giving us a voice. Well, your voice needs to be heard. The other voices are heard too often, telling us less than the truth. So that's why your voices absolutely need to be heard. People need to know. Well, we've done the work. We've lived yep. it. Now, we yep. don't need policies and procedures and manuals. We need action. We need to get this stuff going, and that's what OSI Can is doing. We're not just talking the talk. We're out there. Yeah. We're helping. So Michelle, thank you for helping. I know you're going to ha- I just know you're going to make it happen. I know. Absolutely know. And I'll stay in touch with you. I appreciate you just reaching out. Thank you so much. Thank you. There's Michelle in Saskatchewan. OSI Can. O-S-I-C-A-N dot C-A. Check it out. Fordham University communications and media studies professor. He's also an international author, sci-fi author of many books, music producer, and uh, has won many awards. His uh, most recent book is Peter Brown Called, and uh, it talks of sci-fi and music. What's that book about, Paul? Well, it's about one of my uh, combinations of two consuming interests. You mentioned both of them, science fiction uh, and music. You know, I had an album out, Twice Upon a Rhyme, back in the early 70s. I I remember. I played a cut from it a couple of years ago. Uh, And I just recorded a a new album, literally last week, of uh, science fiction-related songs, but a few months ago I put out this uh, anthology of my science fiction stories 
in which music plays a major role. For example, in one of my time travel stories, someone goes back in time and tries to prevent the assassination of John Lennon. Uh, there are other crazy science fiction stories where a Sam Cooke song from 1962 plays a role in an intergalactic battle thousands of years in the future. So I've always had fun with those two uh, wellsprings of information, science fiction and music, and uh, that's what this book does. Peter Brown called, of course, is a quote from and an homage to the ballad of John and Yoko. You know, Peter Brown called to say you can make it okay. For some reason, that <laughs> yeah, of line course. always... Uh, of course. Is, you yeah. know, I knew that that line, that line rang a bell, but I couldn't, I couldn't place it. Yeah, there it is. Peter Brown called. The picture on the cover is interesting because you know it looks a little like me, but it's actually a denatured or whatever you call it uh, picture of Peter Brown. You know, drained of its uh, color to just you know look like a uh, pen and ink sketch. So, if our listeners want to get hold of your books, what's the best way to do that? Uh, the single best way is just uh, search on my name, Paul Levinson, on Amazon. You'll get every book I ever wrote. So, And you're an amazingly prolific writer, Paul Levinson. I try to do as much damage as possible. <laughs> you only get one ride on the merry-go-round. All right, let's you and I talk about what's going on between the President of the United States and uh, and media, some media organizations, some individuals particularly. Not all, but he particularly has... Uh, disaffection for Jim Acosta from uh, CNN. So I know you're not a great fan of Donald Trump's or his handling of the the media uh, situation. So, uh, Professor Levinson, give us your take on what's going on. Well, I got to say, uh, Roy, that I disagree almost completely with your analysis in terms of what the serious violations of, of just uh, common expectations of the way the relationship between the press and the president should work. And you don't have to go any further than actually the the two Jim Acosta bookends. One goes back to January 2017, before Trump is even president. And uh, Acosta, you know, raises his hand to ask a question. It's a press conference in New York at Trump Towers. And Trump, rather than calling on him, says... I'm not going to call on you. You're with CNN. You're fake news. And, uh, and by the way, that's a pretty clever uh, ploy on Trump's part, turning the tables. Basically, fake news up until that moment was known as completely bogus conspiracy theories that helped or were supposed to help the, the Trump campaign. But at that moment, Trump turns the tables and paints CNN uh, as as fake news. Since then, he's continued to do that. He's added in enemies of the people, and he did the same thing with Acosta in, in, in the aftermath of that exchange that you uh, played. And th- those very terms are extremely disturbing and serious because fake news is all too reminiscent of the term that the Nazis used in the Weimar Republic to undermine the public's confidence in Germany's free press uh, in the early 1930s. They called it the Lügenpresse, the Nazis did, which means the lying press. So are you drawing, and, a, are you drawing a line between Donald Trump and uh, at least the beginnings of Nazi Germany? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I'm not drawing the line. I'm pointing to the line that exists. And, uh, you know, and it's not just that, it's the Soviet Union. Because when you look at the history of enemy of the people, do a search on that. What name pops up? Maybe it's Donald Trump's name, you know, now. But, you know, the fact is the name that, that pops up is Joseph Stalin. All right, oh, uh, Paul, Paul we, know, we know that Donald Trump's a combative guy. We know that. And you can't tell me that the, and I'm, I'm not trying to take the side of, uh, of the President of the United States, but I have to make this point. You can't tell me that the treatment he's received from some media organizations has been fair and balanced. So he, we know he shoots back. We know he fires back from the hit. But I don't see how you can make the, the connection between what he's doing and Adolf Hitler. Well, look, here's, here's the, the problem. 
Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. But you have to think when you talk when you bring up the name Adolf Hitler, Hitler, you have to think of the greater context of the man's evil. I, I'm not saying that Trump is Hitler. I'm not saying that Trump is anything on the way to being like Hitler. I'm saying that Trump has begun to walk down the path, the same path that Joseph Goebbels and Adolf Hitler walked in Nazi. But, but aren't you just contradicting yourself? No, how am I contradicting myself? Well, you said you're not making a connection, but you're saying he's walking down the same path they walked. You're suggesting that I am equating Trump with Hitler. I'm asking the question. There's a big difference between saying that the two are the same, and the two are began by walking down the same path. You know, I just find it it very difficult to accept that that Nazism has been such such a curse on humanity and it's constantly now being, I'm not saying you're doing this constantly, I'm just hearing it constantly being dragged into the 21st century when it has anything to do with Donald Trump. And, and that is just, that's dangerous territory. I'm, again, not pointing at you, saying you're doing that, but I'm hearing it from politicians, from elected officials, I'm hearing it from far too many people, and it's very disturbing. Well, what's very disturbing is the, is the reason that people are saying it. And we can either be blind to history we can either say, hey, you know what, N- nothing that happens now has any connection to what happened in the past. We can't learn anything from history. Or we can be alert to the connections that what is happening today have to what happened in the past. And I didn't make up the fact that the Nazis used Lugenpresse and that... One no, I'm not saying that you did. Used fake news. But there, are, there are other examples. There are also people say that Donald Trump's rallies remind them of... Joseph Goebbels rallies. I mean, it just becomes yeah. a, a well, self-feeding, nasty narrative. Yeah, but whose fault is that? First of all, I don't know who says that, and you know that's just a vague, you know, reminds them. What I'm talking about is a specific instance in history, a time when the Nazis, who were not yet dictators but were democratically elected in the Weimar Republic, saw that they needed to undermine the free press uh-huh. in order to get what they wanted. Does this worry you, Paul? That, Paul, does it worry you? Does, does Donald Trump worry you? Of course he worries me. I, and, you know, no other American president has ever done anything like that. No, I know. Richard there hasn't been that kind of relationship, no. Trump. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very worried. And look, I've been, as you know, uh, a... Uh, a defender of the First Amendment since before Donald Trump. And I'll be the first to say that Democrats and Republicans, up until Trump, have been equal opportunity abusers of the First Amendment, ranging from Bill Clinton going all the way back to FDR as far as Democrats are concerned. But no one has ever demonized the press the way Donald Trump has. Paul, when you're, uh, when you're in the White House and you're asking questions of the President of the United States, the protocol is, and correct me if I'm wrong, you ask a question, you get the answer, you sit down and let the next person ask. The, the official protocol is more or less that, but I have never in my life seen a press conference, and this goes back to John F. Kennedy. I've been watching press conferences that long. I can't quite remember Eisenhower. There's never been a press conference in which a reporter with the microphone tries not to get a second question in. There's always one or two reporters who go for a second question. Sometimes uh, the president, in fact, uh, answers that second question. And yeah, it is a little inconsiderate to the other reporters. Would you not say that Jim Acosta strayed way across the line? Jim Acosta is a special case because of what I said before. Jim Acosta was attacked back in January 2017, and Trump has continued to target him ever since. And by the way, the removal of his press credentials is based on another lie from the Trump administration. They claim that Acosta assaulted the woman intern, who you can clearly see uh, on the video. Okay, but let's stay. Let's stay. Let's stay with. Let's stay with the protocol. Let's stay with the protocol in the White House. When you're, when you're a reporter. Now, uh, yeah. Fox News is generally looked at as being on Trump's side. And, uh, and, and yet, when I go back to Obama, 
there was the President Obama. There was there were times when the president, then president of the United States, went after media, and I'm thinking of James Rosen at, at Fox News. Yeah, there's never been a, a really comfortable relationship between some media and the president, whoever the president is. But in this case, I, uh, Paul, I have to tell you, when I watch, and I watch MSNBC once in a while, I watch CNN a little more frequently, but I find that mainstream media, some of, them, some of the cable networks, are so filled with uh, anti-Trump bias and an anti-conservative slant, I think people on the far left in the media in the United States actually think this is balanced and objective news presentation. In the first place, there's no such thing as balanced and effective news presentation. And talking about Fox News, I was glad when they finally a few years. No, no, ago, wait a minute. What, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? There's no such thing as what, what do you mean? There's no such thing as balanced, fair news presentation. Yeah. Well, so I'm saying there's no such thing as an unbiased medium. So that's you know no. that's been the case against in the United States since the Revolutionary War. But there's at, some of the at, the, at the moment yeah. some of the some of these networks have taken it to an extreme. And I don't want to sit here as an apologist for Donald Trump, but I have to call out what some of the media organizations, maybe most of the media organizations in the United States, are doing. Well, I don't know what you think they're doing, but again, I just, I just told you. Get back, to, you know, Trump basically has Acosta's press credentials withdrawn when he was assaulted. The intern hit his arm in her attempt to grab. What would you have done? What do you think the right thing to do would have been with Jim Acosta for his continuing and I, his insistence I, to push questions? I'll tell you what. Basically, walk up to him and stand there with your arm outstretched. He wouldn't have gone on forever. Sooner or later, the other reporters would have said, hey, give up the microphone, and that would have been that. You're talking about the president of the United States. It's not incumbent on the president of the United States to satisfy a reporter. It's not satisfying the reporter. It's satisfying the American people who want to hear the answer to that reporter's question. Well, that's that's a reach. Paul, how do you know that the American people want the answers to Jim Acosta's questions? There are other people in that room who had questions to ask. Sure, but that's why all the reporters are there. They're not there on behalf of themselves or even their news organizations, although technically that's why they're there. They're there on behalf of us, Americans, who would like answers to questions. And so, yeah, I think uh, Acosta pushed it a little, no doubt about it. He's no Casper Milktoast, but the president reacted in frankly, almost an insane way for anyone to react. And by the way, let's not forget, continue that reaction. I'm sure you noticed in the days ahead, he's lashed out at African-American reporters. He just yesterday called someone one of the stupidest people in the world. He's an ongoing insult machine. Well, I've already said he to has, you, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not an apologist for Donald Trump, but I do okay. challenge what I'm seeing in me- reporting from media organizations, and particularly when I see panels on some of the cable news networks, it's like a Donald Trump attack fest. The man is going to fight back, and, and I think they do it because they know that he has a short fuse and that he'll fight back. And that creates then opportunities for further discussions and headlines. Well, the difference is I didn't elect, uh, and no American elected, any reporter. So, yeah, there are reporters who go over the line. There are reporters who are biased. Just about every reporter, every human being is biased. But Donald Trump, uh, by the result of the election in the Electoral College, legally became president of the United States. He has an obligation to be civil. He has an obligation to control himself. He has an obligation, again, not to use terms that harken back to the two great totalitarian countries, uh, the horrendous... All right, and Mr. Levin, Professor Levinson, Paul, I have to stop you because we're out of time, but certainly the last word was yours, and I appreciate the, uh, the exchange. Okay, thanks. Take care, Paul Levinson. Professor, I don't think he appreciates it. We all know... About the the sexting now, and we know Mr. Clement has admitted to infidelities and and behavior that uh, an adult-thinking male should understand, just understand, you don't do. It's it's inappropriate. It's 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 obviously horrible. That's horrible behavior. Dan McTague joins me. Eighteen years. He was a member of the. 
Parliament of Canada, a Liberal MP. And uh, Dan, thank you very much. I, I wanted to talk to you about this because you have so many years of experience in the uh, in Parliament. You're also an outspoken guy. You've never pulled your punches. You've said what you thought. Did the Tony Clement revelation surprise you? And I'm not asking necessarily about Tony Clement specifically. It's more a question about whether the life of a high-profile parliamentarian, and I'm not excusing anybody, can lead to personally and professionally dangerous but seductive opportunities. Well, we don't hear about it very often, um, and certainly not in the context of you know uh, potential concern about overall security. And I think that's a very legitimate concern beyond the personal side, but uh, obviously, things have changed dramatically in the digital age. Uh, uh, these things, the way you contact uh, other individuals, has certainly evolved uh, from the days uh, when this kind of thing happened more discreetly, and less so potentially in the uh, in the public uh, domain. Um, and so, yes, I mean, this is uh, did it surprise me? Yes, of course. Uh, straight up guy, very smart. Uh, I did cross swords with him many times. Uh, did have friendly conversations with him, and I know his. I know Tony going back to the days when we went to uh, University of Toronto. He was a couple of years older than me, but uh, ran for student council, SAC, SCSC, with back at the time at University of Toronto, Scarborough campus. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it certainly did surprise me, but I guess like many others uh, who are in or have had some experience in politics, um, the longer you are away and uh, the Ottawa bubble tends to sometimes do uh, things to individuals and people who might be lonely or those who might sense that, uh, you know, this is really all there is to life. It sounds kind of strange, but you give of yourself everything you have. And so sometimes you let your personal side down, which often involves family, potential embarrassment for yourself. Um, but it's a tough job in the sense of the emotional. Everybody expects you to turn on, turn off, uh, uh, you know, uh, at, a, at, a, at a given notice, you're in the public eye. You have to guard and watch every word you say. It's, uh, you know, it's it's not an easy thing to do. No one puts a gun to your head and says you have to do it, of course. But to those who've been there, um, it's it's kind of surprising, but not at all when you, of course, realize that after the House of Commons has uh, finished its session, your committees are over, you return to, what, five days, uh, six months of the year, where you're away from your family. You're, you're really... Uh, you know, away from your anchor, your your community, your friends, uh, things do change. And uh, I, I sense that there's a very personal side to this that has yet to be explored. But uh, for me, it's uh, it was a very sad uh, revelation. Are there other Tony Clements in that building, do you think? I don't know. Um, everybody really, you know, there's the congeniality there, of course, is is, you know, off camera. People do tend to get along very well with each other. And Perhaps too much so, but I, you know, there are many, many stories going back dozens of years. I think I had my first break. I found an old picture of myself in 1981 working for the housing minister at the time, uh, at a time when interest rates were 22, 23%. There I was, uh, near the Confederation building with a picture. It looked a lot different then, a lot, <laughs> a lot thinner. And no kidding. <laughs> no, and no gray hair. But, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. you always heard things that were odd, salacious and whatnot, but, it was never in the public domain because there really wasn't that, you know, that ability to communicate that uh, with devices within a microsecond. So I think we're in a very, very different world. And if parliamentarians are engaged in this kind of behavior, it's yet another reminder. Uh, this is something that will eventually catch up to you. Is there a sense of omnipotence in that parliament building if you're an MP or a cabinet minister? Chrissy Blatchford wrote an excellent piece about Clement in the National Post. And energy speculated Tony Clement was another of the men who thought he would never get caught. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I just know that uh, for some people, uh, going to Ottawa, you can let your hair down. In other words, you can, you know, you don't have the routine of family and obligations in the evening. Well, what do you do? You know, some some of them are given to going out and drinking. Some of them are, you know, out to the many functions that are there that have been written about. Um, you know, Jacques Chrétien said something very interesting. I think I gave some thought to this. Uh, he used to always come up at the caucus, certainly at the beginning of the you know the first big majority that we got back in 1993. And he said in French, uh, you know, uh, you know, I want you to work hard, but I know you come up here to have a good time too. So there's a little bit of that there, and I'm not so sure it's about the power trip or anything like that. That that obviously comes with the territory, but you know, you're in opposition. There's no power trip there, I can assure you, and uh, it's pretty dull. But 
uh, other than the cut and thrust of your questions on the floor of the House of Commons, if you even get that chance, the rest is simply relegated to, well, you know, often, what am I doing here? Yes, I want to serve my constituents. Yes, I want to do the best for them, but my options are limited. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, peculiarities with being up there. It's a, it's a tremendous honour, and that's probably why so many may feel that uh, times are not up to, to, you know, traditions that have been there. And they've been very proud traditions, and people who have, I think of a Ralph Goodale, who's been there for goodness knows, uh, I think, his first election back in 1980, uh, and with the exception of 80 to 84 to 1993, he's been there ever since. And, you know, with a whiff of scandal or, you know, a, a pretty top-notch fellow. And I think my experience is that most people there have are, you know, very committed to their constituents, often to a fault, the fault missing their family and sometimes losing sense of who they are. And I don't mean that from a power perspective. I mean that from uh, I'm here to serve everybody. Forget about myself. Uh, you know, you, you look at a politician when they go into politics mm-hmm. and you look at them coming out, the, 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 the facial expressions, the, the, the lines on the faces and the hair. It's not physical hard, hardship. It is often emotional hardship. And that's something that uh, I think many people may not, you know, completely understand. And no. I don't expect them to be sympathetic. But no, we, we've, we've, often, we've often said, uh, if you look at a photograph of uh, somebody who's either a prime minister or president of the United States when they go in, you look at the photograph when they go in, you look at the photograph of them some eight years later, and they have really, really aged over that period. Now, I have to ask you this in the minute we have left. Yeah. Very serious business when extortion attempts happen. Yeah, I mean, that is a, a very dangerous situation. I think it does require that... Uh, parliamentarians and the committees uh, tasked now need to have a, a much thorough vetting. And I think it's the job of the whip uh, of the party to ensure that, uh, above all, these uh, folks that sit on sensitive committees and are given uh, significant responsibilities uh, are not in a position where they can be influenced. And if they're given to that, uh, I'm not suggesting that they all need, you know, uh, pre-psychological clearances, but I do believe that there is the, uh, the uh, a higher test on those committees. And I think that's a that's certainly a given with what's happened in the past week. Well, usually we uh, we talk about the, uh, the the oil industry. We talk about the energy sector. We talk about pipelines. I can't let you go with asking her for a 30-second, 45-second thought review of the decision by the judge in Montana, the impact uh, that'll have on, on pipelines, not just Keystone XL, but, uh, but pipelines generally, and the fact that we're still every day importing some 800,000 barrels of oil into eastern Canada to feed the refineries while our oil stays landlocked. Yeah, it's a sad situation, and no other country allows this to happen, uh, uh, Roy. And, of course, you know, you have to look at the fact that uh, you, even on the benches, there are is pre-elections. There are people who have their own biases. And, uh, unfortunately for Canada, we are the only country that is subject to, we're the whipping post of uh, of the environmental test tube, uh, you know, test uh, effects on whether any given uh, pipeline that we propose and Bill C-69, which the Trudeau Liberals have put forward, will put uh, really seal the coffin of uh, the energy industry going forward. You don't have to take my word for it. Gwen Morgan, former in Canada president, uh, even today, uh, yesterday, Tim McMillan, this will cost Canadians jobs and billions of dollars in revenues for governments that they can't afford. Yeah, well, we know seven years, over seven years, the Canadian economy lost $117 billion because of the price differential yep. between uh, what Canada could get on the uh, open market for oil and what we have to sell to the United States for. And I spoke with uh, with uh, the former New Brunswick premier. Help me yes. out. Yep. Well, help yeah, me out. What was it? What's his yeah. name? Frank McKenna. Frank McKenna. Yeah, yeah he Frank was on McKenna. the show talking to us about that earlier yeah. this year. Mr. McTague, always good talking to you. Chief analyst at uh, Petroleum Analyst at GasBuddy.com. 18 years, a member of Parliament, and uh, I've always admired you for being a straight shooter. Thank you very much, Roy, and all the best for tomorrow as well for all your listeners for Remembrance Day. A very, very, very significantly important day for all of us. Thank you, Dan. The state of Washington is often described as the most liberal of the 50 states which comprise the United States of America. So it might have been expected that the people of Washington in Tuesday's midterm election would have voted on an on-the-ballot statewide carbon tax referendum for a carbon tax. Yes, yes, we want the carbon tax. Instead... The voters of Washington turned thumbs down and voted no on the carbon tax initiative. Todd Myers joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He's the director of the Center for Environment at the Washington Policy Center, one of America's leading experts on free market environmental policy. Todd, thank you very much for the time. Thank you for having me. And I just want to say on Remembrance Day, you're talking about 
Afghans standing by Canadians, we will remember Americans. Uh, we Americans will remember Canadians who stood by us after 9-11 and fought in Afghanistan. And so we appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I did a broadcast, a network broadcast, on the anniversary of 9-11 from New York. And the numbers of Americans who came, visited us, specifically sought us out to say thank you for coming and doing this broadcast was was quite it was quite touching. And, you know, we ultimately, we do share this geographical landmass and uh, and and we uh, we're we're damn good neighbors. So Todd, had voters in Washington State voted yes to I sixteen thirty one, initiative sixteen thirty one, Washington would have been the first state in the United States to engage a statewide carbon tax. What was the argument for the carbon tax? Yeah, so in Washington State, we have a system where people can put um, initiatives on the ballot, ideas on the ballot. Um, around, going around the legislature, and that's what this was, and it would have been a $15 per metric ton um, carbon tax. And just to put that in context, that's about 13 cents per gallon of gas. Over the course of a year, it would cost about $250 for the average household with two cars, which is, you know, a couple of weeks' groceries. And the argument was is that we need to do something about climate change and putting a price on carbon would have reduced demand. But more importantly, it was a tax increase and would have increased by about a billion dollars. And that money would have been used by a government board to spend on various um, uh, projects that were designed to reduce CO2 emissions. And when Washington's voters, who actually increased the number of Democrats in the legislature, both in the House and the Senate, voted it down nearly uh, by nearly 57% no, 43% yes. So they were very strongly against it. So what was the argument that carried the day for the no side? Why, why wasn't it passed? I think it's, in my judgment, it's twofold. One is the cost, right? We have a, we are, are, there's a number of taxes that have been raised recently, and so people just feel like they can't afford the cost. But second, they simply didn't trust uh, the politicians to keep their promise on two fronts, I think. First, on how to spend the money. They didn't trust that. Uh, politicians would spend the money wisely to reduce CO2 emissions. But second, they didn't trust uh, the politicians to keep their promise that they wouldn't raise it, that they would meet their targets, um, that they would do those sorts of things. So we also had a revenue-neutral carbon tax two years ago that went down by a similar margin. And in that case, they actually cut sales tax, which is the largest tax in Washington state. But again, people simply didn't trust the politicians to keep their promise to keep it revenue-neutral. So in, in twice in the last uh, three years, uh, the voters of Washington have turned down carbon taxes. Now, your governor, Jay Inslee, led the charge for the tax with the same argument the Trudeau government is using in Canada now, and that is polluters should pay for the damage they're creating for climate. It sounds okay, but the economic repercussions are considerable, and the polluters are, in fact, drivers of the economy and the well-being of citizens. They're not pariahs. And so you find yourself, I think maybe this happened with, with voters in Washington, you find yourself looking at drivers of the, of the state economy, and you find yourself looking at the, 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 the politicians, as you said, who would be managing the money, and you say, who do I side with? Who do I trust? Who, who's, who's actually employing me? Who's paying my salary? Who's creating forward momentum for the economy? Oh, yeah, it's those guys. Well, that's right. And what the voters recognized very clearly was is that it wasn't the polluters who paid. It was it was the, the voters. It was right. average people. They would pay more at the gas pump. It wouldn't be you know, the oil companies who just absorbed it. They would pass it along. They would also pass it along in terms of home heating and natural gas and electricity. So they recognized that that was just um, sort of uh, politics and that that was just a talking point. But at the end of the day, they would pay it. Um, what's interesting is, is that the initiative admitted that it would uh, actually harm industries. And so they did two things. One, they had programs for people who lost their jobs. So they admitted that people would lose their jobs. But they also exempted about 20% of industrial emitters in Washington state because they were called energy-intensive trade-exposed industries. So aluminum plants, food processing, things like that, recognizing that all it would do is simply drive them out of the state by uh, increasing their energy costs. So they admitted the very point that you're making right now and tried to deal with it, although imperfectly. Well, we have the same situation here, the energy-intensive exposed industries, uh, E-I-E, E-I-E-I. Uh, sounds like an old McDonald had a farm song. Anyhow, <laughs> the, uh, I, I always remember what happened in Australia in 2014, and that's after a two-year experiment with a national carbon tax. The federal government of Australia said, enough. And the argument was, the, the reason they rescinded it was, 
Uh, it's hurting our national economy. It's hurting our entre- entrepreneurs. It's hurting business. It's hurting families. It's not doing anything really significantly to help the climate argument. So the tax is out of here. Now they've had it. They've installed it at the state level or the provincial level in some states in Australia, but nationally it is gone. Do you think that uh, a national carbon tax is is on the horizon at any time uh, in, in the in the near future for the U.S. I think it's very unlikely um, for two reasons. One, um, Donald Trump is not going to support a carbon tax. Uh, And second, when um, Barack Obama was elected um, in his first year in office in 2009, when the Democrats had overwhelming majorities in both chambers, in the House and Senate and the U.S. Congress, um, they couldn't get an agreement on a cap-and-trade system there. Um, so it's it's very unlikely that they would do that. What's interesting is is that there are some people on both sides of the aisle who think that it might be a good idea if you cut taxes, if you cut payroll taxes in the United States and things like that. But the political momentum simply isn't there. Um, so I think at the national level, it's it's really uh, unlikely we'll see it any time in the near future. Todd, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Very good to talk with you. Bye-bye. Todd Myers. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.